0: So surgeons make incisions. Uber drivers drive. Teachers gather students and instruct. How do you get your work done? What is the thing that you do to get your work done? Here's another question. How does God get his work done? It's a question that I think has more importance than you might initially perceive. Because if we as a church want to be engaged in the mission of God on earth, we want to not simply be clear about what the task is, but also how he engages it. Not simply clear on the mission, but also the methods. My reasoning is is this. There are millions of things, there are countless things that churches can busy themselves with. Activities, meetings, programs, ministries, stuff, stuff, stuff. I know precisely zero people who right now, at this moment in history, want more stuff in their life. (laughs) I said to you, hey, let's do more things I think the room would clear out pretty quick. What I want to argue is simply this. If we understand not only the mission, but the methodology of how God works, how God gets his work done, then we as the church can prioritize rightly the work that God has set before us, making sure that the things that we do have meaning And are effective and powerful for the work of God in creation. So Genesis 1 instructs us in this. It should instruct us as his people, as his church, how God gets his work done. First of all, to understand how he gets his work done, you have to understand what the work is. So we begin there. First, the work that is to be done. What is the work that needs to be done in Genesis 1? Last week we saw... In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God created all things. Heavens and earth is is referring to everything that is created. So from one end of creation to the other, and everything that's in between, God created. But there is a problem. There's work that remains. In verse 2, it's detailed for us. The earth was without form and void. Without form and void. Darkness was over the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water. So, without form, void, no life, nothing living, nothing flourishing, no one to enjoy the presence of God or to commune with Him. This is a problem. But by the end of the chapter... Man, look at this. Don't you wish you could, you could, like, tick off things on your to-do list like God does on the first six days? Like, this is amazing. Look where he gets by the end of the chapter, verse 28. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you my image bearers, the ones created in my likeness, who are going to fill my creation. I've given you every plant yielding seed that's on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You'll have them for food, and every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I've given every green plant for food, and it was So, it's an amazing picture. And as God takes it all in, he agrees. Look at what he says in verse 31. God saw everything that he had made, how it all worked together, the sum total of it. And behold, it was very good. So good by the end of this sixth day as he describes it, that on the seventh day he can kick back. He, He can rest enjoy the fruits of his labor the beauty of creation the functioning of creation all put on display It was so good that he could rest by the seventh day so by the end of the seventh day in chapter 2 and verse 3 God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation without form and void, to everything being filled and full and beautiful and living and thriving and enjoying the presence and the blessing of God. And God is pleased. That's a good week's work. The goal here, the goal is to somehow move from without form and void to God seeing that it's very good, so good that he could rest. That requires work, right? Moving from without form and void to formed and filled. There's, there's something, I mean, I've, I've alluded to this a couple times already, but there's something so exciting about this if you pause and reflect on this, right? The, the notion that you could go in and engage work and get everything done, every last box ticked off, everything finished, everything working the way that it should, and then enjoy rest at the end of that? Doesn't that sound glorious? This is one of the realities of how God has created us. When we talk about longings, So so many of us, we're like perpetual optimists, right? We show up to work on a Monday, we're like, okay, this week I'm going to nail it. I've got my to do list, I've worked out my my workflow, I've got all my structures in place, and this week it's going to work. And then by the end of the week, our to do list is always longer than it was at the beginning. It's a frustrating experience of living in fallen creation. But we identify this longing. Where does that longing come from? It comes from how we see our God working in the beginning of creation. In the the text, it presents it this way, that God gets his work done, taking place over six days. And, And within the six, there's two sets of three Really, two answers to the two problems. So if the earth is without form and void, God takes three days to work on the without form and three days to work on the void. He's going to take three days to form and three days to fill. First, he's going to plow the field and then you plant the crops, right? First, you build the house and then you make it a home. Day 1 matches day 4. The, the forming of day 1 in verses 3 to 5 as, as God separates light from darkness... The forms of that match the filling of what he does in day four in, in verses 20 or, or rather in verses 14 to nineteen where he establishes the great lights in the heavens to populate the starry sky to, to rule over the days and the nights and the seasons and the months and the years he forms and he fills. Days two and five match. In day two, God forms. He, he he separates the waters above from the waters below, and he creates an expanse in the midst of the sky, so that everything that we see, the, the seas down below and the sky up above, are formed. And then in day five, in verses 20 to 23, he fills it so that the waters swarm. They teem. They're filled with life, with the fish, with the great sea creatures, and the skies are filled with birds, populating and filling the heavens. In day three, he forms, he gathers the water together to separate out dry land from the waters, creates vegetation that comes forth from the dry land, seed according to its kind, plants, trees, all according to their kinds, all in preparation for the filling of day six. When God creates animals, land animals, from the ground, fills the earth with creatures, and then creates man in his own image and likeness to rule and to reign over creation, to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and to reign over everything else that all that God has done in the first six days of creation. He forms and he fills. It is methodical, it is systematic, it is poetic, and it is beautiful. When it's all done, God rests. Everything is created and cultivated. Everything has purpose. Everything has place. Everything is gone according to process, on schedule. Everything is sorted. Everything is balanced and beautiful. It's flourishing and it's finished. This is the work that our God has done to create a place where his people can dwell together with him as their God with life flourishing and his blessing going to every part of creation through his people. Overcoming chaos and disorder and darkness and the absence of life to create a people who will flourish and spread over all the earth. That's that's the work that God does in creation and it is Wonderful. That's, that's all the what, and we've even kind of teased it out a little bit over, over the, the, the days of creation. But how? How is it? What is his actual methodology? How does he then get this work done? What's the agency by which he accomplishes this? Here's a second heading how this work gets done. It's important to note that the creation account is very tightly organized. I've heard over the years, as people have talked about the creation account, that um, sometimes people will describe it, and they'll say it like, almost like it's dismissing it. They'll say, oh, it's, it's poetic. And when they say that, it's almost as if sometimes there's the undertone of, like, therefore, we don't have to take the words too seriously. When in reality, the careful construction of every poetic word and every poetic form is designed meticulously so that it carries more theological water. It carries its weight even more. It's very carefully structured. Even down to the the numbering of words. This, This is important. The numbering of words... Indicating the deliberateness of this account. It's, so chapter one and verse one specifically has seven words. Everything's multiples of seven, seven words. Second verse, when God begins to address the problem, is 14 words. The, the corresponding conclusion in chapter 2, verses 1 to 3 has 35 words. 35 times through this narrative, the name or the title for God, Elohim, is used. Twenty-one times we hear of heaven, 21 times we hear of earth, and God blesses Or names his creation seven times. There's significance in all of this. It is a very carefully crafted passage so that you can hear it so many times and memorize it in an oral culture where you can't just take your Bible and walk home and read it again when you get home, so that you can memorize it and you know it word for word. And if you get to the verse and it's only six words, you know you missed something. There is significance to the fullness of all the sevens, of all the numbers. So the frequency, the counting of the words is not insignificant, and it has bearing on our question of how God gets his work done. I wonder if you noticed this as Jason was reading through this passage, chapter 1 and verse 3, and God said, let there be light. Verse 6, and God said, let there be an expanse. Verse 9, God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered. Verse 11, God said, let the earth sprout vegetation. Verse 14, God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens. Verse 20, God said, let the waters swarm. 24, God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures. 26, God said, let us make man in our image. 28, God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Verse 29, God said, behold, I've given everything. Ten times, ten words, ten declarations of God to his creation. Significant, ten words given to God's people. Ten times he speaks, ten words. And what's the response to his word? When God said it, what happens? Again, the numbers are significant. Verse 3, and there was light And then verse 7, verse 9, verse 11, verse 15, verse 24, verse 30, and it was so, and it was so, and it was so, and it was so, seven times. The perfection of response, the fullness of response to everything God has declared is absolute obedience without exception in all of creation. Well, what are we to make of that when God speaks and everything responds and everything obeys and everything works? What's the response? What's the evaluation? Verse 4, God saw that the light was good. Verse 10, and God saw that it was good. Verse 12, God saw that it was good. 18, 21, 25, God saw that it was good. The seventh time, the climactic time. Verse 31, God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Seven times. The climactic time, it was very good. Can we stop and, and reflect on the art of narrative for a second? Like, we, we all do this. When you say the art of narrative, it sounds like something fancy. But like we all do this, right? You have stories in your life that like, if someone's going through something, like they're going through a hardship, oh, I've got a story that I can share with them. Or, or, or if they're going through a good time, oh, yeah, I remember this, and you can tell a story too. The, the, the reason why you tell the stories that you do and the way that you tell them is determined by the reason, the occasion. Why are you telling that story? That, that determines the details that you leave in or the details that you take out. So like, there was this time um, when, when I, I worked for a car dealership. I won't state publicly which one. And um, I, was, uh, I had just learned to drive, and... Um, so I thought this was a great job because I was a car jockey, so all I had to do was like drive cars from the front parking lot to the back parking lot, and move them around, all that kind of thing. So driving cars is great fun when you're like 16 years old, and you just get your license. And so so I'm doing this now. I, I go to the, I, I I go to drive one of them, but it's standard. I don't know how to drive standard. Do you know what they did? They told me just try. <laughs> I don't know, it's not our car. <laughs> So I'm not telling you what dealership it was. So I'm like, okay, fine. So they, the guy described to me, you just push down on the one thing, and then you turn it on, and then you push down on the clutch. So I'm like, okay. So I go in, and I try to push down on the clutch, but I didn't realize you're supposed to push it all the way down, right? So any of you who've driven standard, you know what happens, right? You turn it, and the whole thing, the car just, like, leaps, and it's like whiplash, and you smash into the car in front. I mean, uh, so anyway, it's like, it's, it's a terrible thing that happened. Now, um, they didn't care, so I kept trying, and eventually I got it. So, um... Now, now when I tell that story, I could tell it different ways. I could tell that story like if someone's learning to drive standard. I'll be like, it's easy. No one even taught me. I just figured it out. (laughs) Um, If you're like, I don't know, should I take my car to get service at the dealership? I'm like, well, I got a story about that dealership. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The the, the way that I tell the story and the details that I include are going to be shaped by the reason why the occasion for the story so it's worth asking the question, why? why is Moses telling this story? To whom is he speaking? This uh, Genesis chapter 1. Is, is the beginning of what we know is, is, here's a big word for you, the Pentateuch, or another word would be described, you could call it the Torah. It's the first five books of the Bible. They're all written by Moses himself. And, and what Moses is doing is Moses is writing to a people who he has led out of, like through the Exodus, through the wilderness for 40 years, and they're about to go into the promised land, but he can't go with them. As one who can't go with them, but has a heart for them, and wants to see them flourish the land, he's giving them the word. So he's writing the first five books of scripture to give to them, to take with them into the land. And we miss this in English, but the land into which they're going into, the word land is the same word that's used for earth here in creation in Genesis chapter one. So as Moses is giving these instructions to the people, as they are getting set to go into The land that God has prepared in advance for them to go into, just like God created everything for Adam and Eve so that it would flourish, and then he places them into it so that they could reap the benefits and be blessed. The narrative is shaped by the occasion If he's going to talk about God overcoming light and darkness, he's telling the story to a people who just saw the ten plagues in Egypt and realized that God brought darkness for days, shaming the sun god of the Egyptians. If Moses is here going to talk about separating the waters, he's talking to a people who've just been delivered through the Red Sea, but watched their enemies get swallowed up. In Genesis 1 and 2, what Moses is writing is he's writing to his people who are going into the promised land in Canaan, what they missed in the prototypical land in Eden, so that they get it right this time around. So he speaks to them and he tells them about God's original ten words. This is significant, right? If you're an Israelite, you understand the ten words of God, the ten commandments of God, the words that God has declared over us by which we are to live. So he declares these ten words of creation and he shows the perfect response of all of creation. Seven times it was so. Everything obeyed. And what's the response when everything obeys God's word? It was good, it was good, seven times good, very good, and they flourished and they prospered in the land. Deuteronomy chapter 30, at at the end of the Pentateuch, at the end of the Torah, as Moses is finishing all his work and writing to the people, this is is what he says, Deuteronomy 30, verse 15. He says, see, I've set before you today life and good Death and evil. Do you recognize those words from the creation account? If you obey the commandments of Yahweh your God that I command you today by loving Yahweh your God, by walking in his ways, and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply. And Yahweh your God will bless you in the land, in the earth, that you are entering to take possession of it. It's so obvious, it's so simple. Verse 19, he testifies this, he says, I call creation, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I've set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Life and death, blessing and curse, good and evil. Are you recognizing this language? Moses is bookending all of what he writes in the Torah, in the Pentateuch. What's the point of all of it? Creation is built this way. To hear His word and to obey is to flourish and live. That's the testimony. When God wants to accomplish the work of blessing His people so that they flourish and prosper and know His presence. He gives them his word and calls them to obey. But can I show you one more thing? There's there's one more thing that's that's here in this text that is so significant. Because it's not just the word. Look back at chapter 1 and verse 2. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And look, 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 the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water. The Spirit of God who works in the background, the Spirit of God who's not front and center invisible, but the Spirit of God who accomplishes all God's work is ready, waiting, hovering, Anticipating the moment God's word goes forward so that the spirit empowers and enlivens the word so that it accomplishes all God's work. God's spirit here in in chapter 1 and verse 2 is hovering, hovering like a mother bird over its nest, bringing its its babies to life so so that they can flourish and fly. And again, at the end of Deuteronomy, the only other time this image is used of God in Scripture, at the end of Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy 32, Moses comes back to it. After just reading the law to the people for the last time before he goes up the mountain to die, this is what he says to them in Deuteronomy 32.10. He's describing the history of Israel. He says he found Israel in a desert land in the howling waste of the wilderness. He encircled him and cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing on its pinions. What's he saying? He's saying, I've given you the law and God is still hovering. As the word echoes forth over all creation and over God's people in particular, the spirit is hovering, ready to act ready to work. You're about to go into the promised land. What will you do with the word? The spirit is ready to work. Are you ready to be worked on? Are you ready to be made to flourish? How does God get his work done? He gives his word. And what makes his word effective, it is his spirit. The word and the spirit always from the very beginning of creation, word and spirit always go together. Now, this, is, this is an interesting thing. Sometimes churches are described as being like spirit-filled or, or something like that. And other churches are described as being like word churches or word-centered church. That is a dichotomy from hell. Let's just be honest. Where does the Spirit of God work? He works in and through the Word of God. If you want to be a Spirit-filled people, be a Word-drenched people. If you want to be a people who are characterized by the Word, pray for and anticipate the working of the Spirit. This is how our God got His work done in creation. Here's the last thing I want to say is simply this. This is how God gets His work done still from from the Torah moving on through the history of God's people because you know what happens, right? You know they didn't obey the word of God. You know that they sinned both in Eden but also in Canaan in the promised land. And so they were exiled. And so along come the prophets. And the prophets declare there's a day coming when God will bring restoration, when God will bring healing, when he'll reestablish his people. And there's a promise of a new covenant. And in Ezekiel chapter 37, we get this amazing image for, I'm going to make a confession here. I can't remember if I've made it publicly or not. I've often said I hate the book of Ezekiel um, because I just don't get it. There's so many things in it that are just so frustrating to me. And I'm like, I teach the Bible, I should get this. But every time I go to read it, I get confused. But in any case, someday I'll preach it. Right now, I'm confused by it. But there's one passage that, even if you're like me and you read Ezekiel and you're just overwhelmingly confused by, there's one passage that everybody knows. It's Ezekiel 37, this amazing vision that Ezekiel is given. The Spirit is on him and the Spirit works in him to give him this vision. And he's taken out into a valley of dry bones. The picture is these bones are dry. They've been dead for a long time. The bodies have wasted away. The the flesh is all gone. The sinews are gone. Everything's gone. And even the bones themselves are just dry and brittle. It is is fullness of death. The armies of God's people uh, are the bones. They, They have been defeated and scattered. So in Ezekiel 37 and verse 3, we read this. God asks Ezekiel, Son of man, can these bones live? Ezekiel answers, Oh Lord God, you know. <laughs> it's always a good answer if, if God asks you a question, right? Oh God, you know. <laughs> uh, he, he, I'm not going you know. Uh, then, then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones. Declare the word of God over these dead bones and say to them, Oh dry bones, hear the word of Yahweh. And what happens? He declares the word of Yahweh over the bones. Verse 7. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied there was a sound, and behold, a rattling. What does a rattling of bones sound like? That'd be so cool to hear. Uh, A rattling, and the bones came together, bone to bone, and I looked, and behold there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. The word brought them together, but there's no breath, there's no life yet. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, same word that's used for spirit In Hebrew, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, breathe on these slain that they may live. And what's the outcome when the word and the spirit come together? Verse 13, and you shall know that I am Yahweh when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will put my spirit within you and you shall live and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am Yahweh, I have spoken, and I will do it. He said it, and it was so. The same story from the beginning of creation through all time, the anticipation of our hope of not just creation life, but new life, resurrection from the dead, is that God says it, he declares it, and by the power of his spirit, his word gets his work done. This is the promise of the new covenant. Where does it come? Where do we see it? It's surprising. John picks up on this in John chapter 1 with familiar words in verse 1. He says, in the beginning, but this time he says this, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He clarifies for us, lest you miss the obvious, the Word is Jesus, he says in verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we've seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father. But that begs the question, can we see it? Is it enough that the word simply is? If you turn the page from John chapter 1 to John chapter 3, you find someone who comes to Jesus who thinks that he can see, who actually cannot See, even though Jesus the word has taken on flesh and is literally standing right in front of him, he still can't see. And what's Jesus' answer in John 3 and verse 5? Truly, truly I say to you, unless one is born of the water of, of water and the Spirit. You cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. Don't marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. The simple reality is that in order to be reconciled to the God of creation... We need the revelation of his word to tell us who he is, of his holiness, of his majesty. We receive the commandments, the instructions, the words that are given to us for life. But we also need to see that we have fallen short of his glory, fallen short of his standards, broken his law, gone our own way. We also need to see the fulfillment of the word, the perfection of the word, the obedience of righteousness in the person of Christ. And we need all of this To gain power through the working of the Holy Spirit so that I can own my sins. I can see God as merciful and just. I can cast my cares, my burdens, my sins on him. I can confess that I've sinned and fallen short. And I can trust in him, the one who came and suffered and died for me. And I can rise from my grave. No longer born flesh for flesh, but by the Spirit, for the Spirit. With the Spirit of God dwelling in me by faith, I am made alive to Him. If you want new life, resurrection from the dead, you need the Word. You need Jesus Christ Himself, the manifestation of all that God has revealed. Understand how this creation rule works. The spirit makes the word effective. The spirit applies the word. God does nothing without his word. His word and his spirit get his work done. That was true in creation. That was true with Israel. That was the anticipation of the new covenant. That's, the, that's what the fulfillment in Christ And that's where we live right now, too. We talked at the beginning about what is this going to mean for us as a church as we think not only about mission, but about methodology. This affects how we live as a church because we live in the pattern, that same pattern right now in the new covenant. In Galatians chapter uh, 3, the Apostle Paul holds this up for for the Galatians. Remember the, the, the passage? Some of you know it where he says, Oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? He describes the situation this way. He says, Christ was publicly portrayed before you as crucified. You saw this with your eyes. But how did you receive the Spirit? Did you receive the Spirit by works of righteousness? Or did you receive the Spirit, do you remember, by hearing the Word with faith? If you receive the Word, you receive the Spirit in Ephesians chapter 1, as Paul glories in the salvation that Christ brings to his people, that all things would be to the praise of his glorious grace, he says this to the Ephesians. He says, In him you were sealed with the Holy Spirit when? When you heard the word of truth and believed. Spirit and the word build the church, they get God's work done. So what does this look like for us as we seek to engage the Great Commission, as we seek to be a people who flourish in God's presence, we are fruitful and multiply and spread to fill the earth with his people? What does it look like for us? I want to offer us just really briefly, um, I think, two words of admonition on practice and one on expectation. On practice, I want to say this, Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6, Paul writes this to, to the Galatians. He says, one who is taught the word must share all good things with the one who teaches. He's, he's talking here specifically about financial support for those who are engaging in the work of ministry in the local church. And, but, but track how the logic works. Verse 7, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever one sows, that will he also Reap, For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Are you catching the logic? Investing in word ministry in your local church is sowing to the Spirit so that as the word ministry is multiplied, you will reap eternal life. But if you do not invest in word ministry, you're sowing to the flesh, and it will be corruption. Catch the logic? I'm not here talking about my salary. I'm fine. In fact, as, as, as a church, as staff, we're, we're, we're provided for, and we're thankful for the opportunity to serve the church. But what I am saying here with this is simply this. I'm I'm trying to reduce this great and grand principle of creation down to practice as a culture for us as a church. To be a place that as we invest in a guy like Femi, who is engaging in bringing the word, disseminating the word in our small groups. So that as we gather week by week, we're engaging in the work of the ministry of the word with one another. Or or as he leads us in prayer meeting and week by week, we open up the word together and seek God in prayer. That is an investment in the spirit so that we can reap eternal life. When when we hire a guy like Jason who's going to lead guys through a process of learning how to understand and apply scripture so that they can teach it to the congregation, so that teaching is multiplied, your investment in his salary is an investment in your spiritual life. Because it's a multiplication of word ministry. Don't worry, I'm not going to go through every one of the staff. I'm giving you a few examples. All the guys are doing good work. I'm just saying we don't simply hire staff for the sake of getting random jobs done that we need done. As a church, we invest, we aim to invest in those staff who will labor for the multiplication of word ministry so that we are blessed by the work of the Spirit and its investment in eternal life. That's one practice. Here's another word of practice. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, I'm not going to go with this at length because those of you who were at the men's retreat last night already heard about this. I'll simply mention it. In First Timothy chapter 4 and verse 1 we have this admonition the spirit expressly says And and, and Paul's setting Timothy and subsequent generations of ministry up for this. Understand this that the Spirit expressly says that there's going to come attacks against the church and people are going to fall away and there's going to be all kinds of temptation to bad doctrine and all kinds of other things. So, what are you to invest in in light of all of what the Spirit has said? What does the Spirit, who inspires the text, tell us to do? 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 13, until I come, Paul says, devote yourself to the public reading of. Scripture, the Word, to the exhortation and the teaching of the Word. Devote yourself to this. I I don't know what programs will come and go. And I don't know what staff will come and go. But as long as I am alive and have any ounce of strength in me, this church will be a church that is committed to this. We believe that the work of God gets done by the word of God, empowered by the spirit of God. And so when we gather, it's like, man, we, we, we read scripture, we sang scripture, we've been praying scripture, we've been reading scripture. The preacher's talking a long time about scripture. That's not an accident. And I won't apologize. We believe this is where the spirit of God gives life to his people in the word of God. We will devote ourselves to This and our ministry decisions will be filtered through this. Those are the words of practice. Here's the words of exhortation or expectation, rather, expectation. First Thessalonians 1, this is what Paul says about the Thessalonians. He says, For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you. How do you know that, Paul? Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. So here's the expectation for you. As we, as a church, devote ourselves to the reading of scripture, to the exhortation, to the teaching, as we invest our financial resources in the multiplication of word ministry, here's what you should expect to see. Lost sinners will be saved. Dead sinners will come alive. Those of us with disordered hearts will find the word of God doing its work, ordering our hearts and our lives. We'll be growing in Christ-likeness, in conformity to Christ because the word of God will come not simply as words, but it will come with power by the spirit of God and with full conviction because this is how our God works. Always has been. Always will be. Don't don't come on Sundays expecting nothing to happen. Pray. Pray to the God who created everything with ten simple words. Pray that that God who reigns in power over death and darkness and chaos would come and bring life. Flourishing of life and multiplication of life to his people as we, week by week, open up the word in dependence on the Spirit of God. Our God gets his work done by his word and the power of his spirit. Let's aim to engage not only in the mission, but the methodology as well. Let's pray.